You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Molly, clap your hands. Okay, you're looking for applause, Seth? <laughs> See, when you slam your hands together like that, what you're doing is you're making a sudden change in the pressure of the air near your hands, and that causes a wave to move through the room, a pressure wave. Wait, where does the pressure come from? Well, you just squished some of the air molecules closer together between your hands, okay? So they got close to one another, but then when you took your hands apart, they expanded outward, which forced other molecules to get closer together. So this wave of higher density air molecules just moved out from your hands. Okay, so these are pressure waves, but then why do we hear them? Well, those waves eventually, of course, reach your ear, and then they enter your ear and eventually find the eardrum. Now, your eardrum is a membrane, a diaphragm. It's just this flat thing. It's sitting there, not doing much, but now suddenly the air in front of it gets really dense and causes it to move a little, causes it to vibrate back and forth. And as you learned in school a long time ago, the eardrum is connected by some small bones to the cochlea, and that vibration eventually shakes some tiny hairs in the cochlea, which are connected to your brain. And that's when you actually hear the sound. So we don't really have a hearing device so much in our ears as a pressure-sensitive device? Exactly. Welcome to Big Picture Science. And if I say it louder, I'm Molly Bentley. You've created a higher pressure wave. I'll bring the pressure down. I'm Seth Shostak, and writer George Foy, for one, thinks there are too many high-pressure waves, at least bouncing around Manhattan. I was at the 79th Street and Broadway stop by happenstance, all four trains came in at the same time, and the noise was really mind-boggling. And all of a sudden, with all this noise hitting me at the same time, I really got a visceral reaction against it, thinking, this is absolutely insane. What I really need now is silence, a really quiet place, which got me thinking about what exactly is silence? Where could I find that? So George Foy went looking for silent places, and it took him all over the world. We'll hear what he didn't hear. Also in the show, why hearing loss and the evolution of machines goes hand in hand, and the sound of the universe, including sounds we haven't yet detected, but we believe, or rather Einstein predicted, are out there. That's right. In space, can anyone hear you scream? Well, we can hear screams in this studio, although I'd prefer not to. Loud noises create bigger, more intense pressure waves, which can move your eardrum more, and if your hearing is exposed to too much of that violent shaking, it can damage your hearing. However, fortunately, we can measure sound and keep our ears functional. And for that, I have here a sound pressure meter. So this thing has a small microphone in it and a diaphragm, which is a membrane like what's in your eardrum. And it figures out how much force is being exerted on it. 
Right. So that's the pressure. Higher pressure means louder sound. This is also called a decibel meter. Right, right. And a decibel is just a, a, a unit that tells you whether something is more or less intense by certain amounts. Yeah, I'll turn this meter on here. Decibel, by the way, was named after Alexander Graham Bell. Decibel. How do the numbers work, Seth? Because it's it's logarithmic, isn't it? That's right. So something that's 70 decibels on this meter is 10 decibels louder than something that's 60, which means it's 10 times more energetic, 10 times louder. In fact, each three decibels is a doubling of loudness. So something that registers 6 dB, 6 decibels... Would be twice as loud as something that's 3 dB. That's right. And 9 dB would be four times louder than... Something that's 3 dB. So that's a quadrupling of the sound. So what does your decibel meter read in here? While we're talking, what does it read? Yeah, well, uh, at this moment, uh, since it's closer to me, it's picking up me mostly, but it's about 67, 68 decibels. Okay, so what happens if we don't talk? All right, wait a minute. It's reading about 54 decibels. So that means when we're talking, it's 20 times as loud in here as when we're not. But I wonder if it could actually drop to zero decibels. That's the name of George Foy's account of his search for silence, his attempt to escape all these pressure waves. Now, being a big fan of silence myself, I asked if I could join the search with him in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he lives now. And we started with one of the quieter places in town, at least we thought, Mount Auburn Cemetery. So, George, we're sitting in Mount Auburn Cemetery, and I think it's appropriate that as we started this interview, an airplane was going overhead. In fact, there's another one. I can hear it when I'm not hearing the traffic just outside the cemetery. You can hear the airplane. You can hear as well the natural sounds of the garden cemetery that we're sitting in. All of these, obviously, are part of the sound environment that I live in since I live in Cambridge, but this is one of the relatively more quiet areas. You have a decibel meter with you, uh, which you bought for this project. What's the reading right now? The reading here is sort of skating around 52, 53, but it's going up as high as 60, 65, 66, and as low as 49. When it went up to 60, was that that truck that went by back in the background? It, it might have been. It's hard to correlate. There's birds, too, which are surprisingly loud, and there's wind. There's stuff that you don't realize until you start measuring it. Okay, now the bullfrog's jumping it up from 56, 57 to 60. Yeah. So what is that? Where, where does that fall in the scheme of things, 60 decibels? 60 decibels is the sound of fairly loud conversation. It's the sound of a hairdryer. To my mind, that's very loud. It's about three orders of magnitude higher than 50, which is the level at which chronic sound of that volume will actually start to affect you physically, it will actually cause you stress. But that can't be here in the cemetery, with the exception of that truck going by and so forth. It's actually quite peaceful. I can't believe that we're subject to the kind of sound we would be if we had a hairdryer close to our heads. No, I mean the I mean the volume. I mean the decibel levels. I'm not talking about the quality of the sound. I'm not talking about to what extent you like it or don't like it. It's just simply the, the decibel levels. Now, in your, in your search of silent places, and you went to a number of different places looking for places that were quiet. Where does Mount Auburn, as, as this truck rolls by in the background, where does Mount Auburn fit into the noisier or the more silent places? Because I believe that we came here because this was one of the quieter places in town. That's right. Well, I live in a city. I mean, Cambridge is not a big city, but it is a city. And if you live in a city, you have to expect that there's going to be sound. I mean, there's 100,000-plus people living around you, and they're all making noise, and there's a lot of trucks, and, and there's a lot of road noise. And even Mount Auburn, which is a green area, and it's large, and it's there's tons of trees and grass and so forth to, 
to dampen sound. Even Mount Auburn is relatively noisy. It's not a place that I would choose to live on a long-term basis. You mean the cemetery isn't? <laughs> that I'm afraid the choice isn't up to me there. But uh, no, the city isn't a place where I would choose to live on a long-term basis because I've come to appreciate silence or relative silence and want as much of it as I can get. I find it something that's crucial, and I think it's something that's crucial to humans generally, and more and more crucial in the sense that we're becoming more and more divorced from silence. And it's crucial in a bunch of different ways. One is simply in terms of physical health, cause stress and heart problems. Uh, psychologically, certainly, it, it contributes to a, a sense of busyness, of stress, of being, of not knowing exactly how to cope with life. But also, silence is something that allows you to recalibrate. I mean, silence is what defines sound. It's what defines rhythm. Rhythm is what defines our life. And if we are subject to rhythms around us and can't get away from those, then we are to a large extent out of control and lacking control in our own lives. And we need silence desperately at that point to be able to separate ourselves from other people's rhythms, to listen to ourselves, to listen to the world around us, to then reset the rhythm that we want in our own lives. When we look at measuring sound, it's measured in decibels, and that's a measurement of the air pressure. There is such a thing as zero decibels. Is that absolute silence? Zero decibels is the point at which a hundred average people, but with good hearing and without tinnitus or tinnitus, stop hearing anything. It's the point at which they say, I hear absolutely nothing. So it's a human definition, but it's not a scientific one because sensitive instruments will pick up sound below that level. And the decibel system of measurement is a complicated one in that it increases by an order of magnitude with every three decibels. And it's exponential so that the entire spectrum of sound available to us goes from zero decibels to the loudest noise you can imagine, a cannon going off next to your ear or a jet right next to you at takeoff, which is at well over 130 decibels. And that entire spectrum is a ratio of one trillion to one huge, huge range. A scientist once said that if our, our hearing was just a little bit more sensitive, we could actually hear the Brownian motion of atoms rubbing against each other. It's that sensitive. And it's that amazing that we can incorporate both a moth's wing rubbing against the other moth's wing on one hand and a mortar round exploding five feet away on the other and not go crazy or not have our system completely shut down. That's how amazingly versatile it is. Is there absolute silence in the universe? Well, that's what the book is supposed to find out. I hesitate to give an absolute answer. I thought, for example, that deep space would be the the summum of what I was looking for. It would be the absolute, absolute of absolute silences because sound, by definition, is molecules rubbing against each other. They have to rub against each other to create sound waves, and the sound waves then hit your ear and so forth. Well, in deep space, I thought there would be no molecules, so there would be no sound. In fact, even deep space has particles in it. There are not a lot of them. There's one every cubic meter in, in the farthest reaches. I also inter interviewed an astronaut, realizing, of course, that no astronaut's going to take his or her spacesuit off to try to listen to the vacuum of space. But still, on kind of a sympathetic magic level, I thought maybe they would have some feeling of it that maybe a spacecraft would be fairly quiet because there would be nothing whatsoever outside of it. And in fact, the astronaut I interviewed named Julie Payette laughed at me and said, 
our spacecraft are noisy. We want them to be that way because they're full of servo mechanisms that keep us alive, uh, filtering air, pumping air, uh, keeping us warm, and so forth. And once once they start breaking down, we're in deadly peril. Hang on, I'm going to let that dump truck pass through the cemetery. Do you think the bullfrog that we're hearing right now, do you think he can hear us? And also, is he attuned to sounds that we can't hear? He's almost certainly, I'm not an expert in bullfrogs, but he's almost certainly attuned to, to sounds we can't hear. Uh, animals generally are are very sensitive to very low frequency noise. So I wonder, you know, I'm just thinking, there's, I can hear the the rumble of the city behind us, and it's it's a low frequency rumble. And I wonder if it's something that, I mean, this is just speculation, but that maybe interrupts this little bullfrog's life. Uh, it may absolutely do that. And you have very solid examples of animals either becoming attuned or being confused by the sounds that humans make because the sounds are so pervasive and so loud and so chronic. A nice example is the fact that catbirds will mimic car sirens. And a not so nice example is the fact that the oceans are becoming more and more filled with human sound from oil drilling tests, from naval active sonar, from commercial shipping. And there's solid evidence to link, for example, naval sonar to whale strandings. And there's, a, there's also a theory that a lot of whale mortalities, apart from the strandings, is caused by this with the deep diving whales who rely on basically finding silence in the, in the ocean depths in order to be able to figure out how deep they are. And confused by echolocation, they don't realize how deep they've gone, and they in fact drown. They dive too deep. As you went through this quest to find silence, you would find yourself in a spot, maybe in your apartment in the early days of this search, and you thought it was pretty quiet, or maybe it was in the bathtub, you thought it was pretty quiet. And then you became aware of something called the monster breath. What is the monster breath? Well, I'm not sure the mic can pick it up, but I can hear it very clearly. It's the, the monster breath is the, what I think of as the breathing of a city. To the extent that a city is alive, this is like its breath, and it's a, it's a breath expressed auditorily. Well, let's see if we can hear it for a moment. Was it the hum of traffic or something other than that? Well, it's definitely the hum of traffic, although I specifically got up at 3 and 4 in the morning to listen, and I could hear it then, too. And I'm thinking more of New York than Cambridge, but even in Cambridge it's present at 3 in the morning. And it's everything. I mean, it's, it's, I think the loudest component is probably tires. Not the engines of cars or buses, but the, the sound that the tires make, which is fairly pervasive. Then there's the motors. There's heating, there's HVAC, the air conditioning part specifically. There's airplanes flying overhead, there's people around you in a city, there's the neighbor next door talking or the TV going, there's a lot of TVs going. Americans watch over eight hours of TV a day, and that's, that's got to be part of it. But as far as the monster breath is concerned, I could pick out specific parts of it, but to be able to define the whole thing was something I could never do, it's simply, I think, because it's so complex. The one time that Maybe I didn't hear it, although I wasn't listening for it because I was a kid, but I remember being hugely struck by how silent New York City was after a, a massive snowstorm had just shut the city right down. And it, it was a wonderful sensation. I think probably at that point there was no monster breath for a few hours in New York City. Coming up the origin of noise, and which is louder, the space shuttle blasting off from Cape Canaveral or a Boston subway train pulling into a T-station? It's Big Picture Science. 
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to Rend Me Your Ears on Big Picture Science. Now, why are we making all this noise about noise? Well, look, Homo sapiens evolved on the savannas and in the forests of Africa. And this is what that species heard all day, every day. Right? Little insects, that little frog we heard earlier, maybe a saber-toothed tiger's stealthy steps. For 150,000 years, that's what our species was used to hearing. But now, and thanks to our own efforts, this is what Homo sapiens hears instead. I mean, is this progress? Is this the inevitable sonic environment for a technologically savvy civilization? My name is Garrett Kaiser, and I am the author of The Unwanted Sound of Everything We Want. First, what is noise? I mean, these are the sounds of the world we created. But when we call a sound a noise, which usually carries a negative connotation, we're speaking about a sound that is unwanted or repulsive or oppressive for some reason. There was a British physicist named G.W.C.K. in 1931 who defined noise as sound out of place. He was actually basing that definition on that of a anthropologist, Mary Douglas, who called dirt matter out of place, shouting wouldn't be out of place at a baseball game. It might be out of place at your grandmother's funeral. So, Garrett, in general, noise is sound we just don't want to hear. Sometimes even noise that we don't enjoy may be noise that we need to hear, especially when the noise comes in the form of some kind of protest or it comes in the form of a sound that we call noise because it's unfamiliar to us. And this especially in the case of the arts. Uh, there's a long history of people referring to the sounds of certain kinds of music as noise because it's new to their ears. Even languages of people throughout history have been called noisy because those who heard them didn't understand the language and they might have been looking down on those who spoke it. And this has also been the case with some forms of technology. You can look in the 19th century and find pretty critical statements about the noise of the railroad and, and describing it as disrupting the landscape and virtually obscene. And now there are many Americans who hear the sounds of trains uh, with a certain nostalgia. They will even drive some distance to a railroad crossing if they hear that an old steam train is going to come through and blow its whistle. Some noise can be a matter of semantics. Uh, maybe the sounds of a city might be unnerving the first two weeks you're living in a new city, but after a while perhaps you get used to it or even feel more comfortable having uh, that noise around you. But if you have too much noise, 
there's some evidence that that's actually bad for your health. Well, yes, it can be bad for your health in a number of ways. The most obvious, of course, is damage to hearing prolonged exposure to sounds of certain frequencies, certain decibel levels will cause you to lose your hearing. And in fact, noise-induced hearing loss is the leading occupational injury worldwide. There's pretty convincing evidence to link noise with high blood pressure. A recent study found that even noise that doesn't wake you up can still elevate your blood pressure. It's been linked to other uh, stress-induced diseases, particularly heart disease. There's some studies that have suggested it as a cause of low birth weight in babies born in Japan next to U.S. air bases. I think you say in your book that the largest single source of noise in society today is transportation. Well, Highway transportation is a major source of noise, perhaps the single major source of noise. Aircraft noise, of course, is another major form of transportation-related noise, and the noise of aircraft has been a noise issue at least since the middle of the last century. And airplanes, by the way, jet planes, have grown quite a bit quieter of the noisy planes that took flight in the 60s, most of those are no longer in the air, so that as an airplane passenger, I'm dealing with a much quieter jet than I or my parents would have dealt with in the 60s. The thing is, there are many, many more of them in the air. So sitting in Mount Auburn Cemetery, as we heard earlier in the show, we hear the birds, the frogs, but also the traffic, the airplanes above the city, this bleed-through seems to be inescapable. It's increasingly inescapable, and the last census revealed that there were between four and five million American households where the people were looking to move because of noise. The only problem is that you get a place where it's quiet, where you can hear birds, where you can go to the cemetery and you don't hear traffic noise, but you're traveling farther for groceries, you're traveling farther for entertainment, and so in your search for quiet, you've in fact contributed something to the overall noise level. Sounds as if there's no escape. And we're also, and this is a paradox, we set a high premium on rights and the rights of the individual. And when you think about that, It's a recipe for a noise dispute because one person will say, I have a right to the private enjoyment of my home and my property, and that includes not having to hear your noise or finding your litter on my front lawn. And even as you're saying that, someone else is saying, I have a right as a freeborn American to make whatever noise pleases me. It's quite interesting because, indeed, this right to make noise, I think many people feel it. Don't like the hi-fi? You don't like the noise we're making with this party? You know, they'll give you some sort of a visible indication of how they feel about your complaint. And yet, we're also the same country that will say, no, no, wait a minute, you can't smoke indoors either. Yeah, and the analogy sometimes made, you know, if I drive by your house and I throw a piece of trash through your open window into your living room, I can probably be arrested, and yet 
I can drive by your house and send my acoustical litter into your window without any kind of consequence. Les Blomberg, a man who heads an organization called the Noise Pollution Clearinghouse, is fond of saying, the right of my fist ends at the tip of your nose, which means my fist has its rights, but once my fist goes to break your nose, it's impeded, it's opposed your rights. And listen, I'm, I'm trying to keep the guys with the boom boxes off my street, but on the other hand, I don't see a whole lot of uh, effort to fight noise. Apparently in the Roaring Twenties, initiatives were introduced in the U.S. and also in Europe to uh, quiet down the roar of the motor cars and of the radios. Were they successful in doing that? And what happened to those initiatives? Well, they were controversial. The radio came on the scene and suddenly people could have music without needing to afford a piano or concert tickets. In Europe for a while, you know, one sign of bourgeois attainment was having your own piano and your child, especially your daughter, being able to take lessons. It was considered part of the training of a young lady. And suddenly everybody or most everybody could have a radio and play it. And there were a lot of passionate debates over the radio. And I think in the Netherlands, the Socialist Party actually opposed legislation that would have quieted radio noise because they felt this was an effort to take away the ordinary working man or woman's pleasure in sound. There were initiatives to quiet radios. There were initiatives to quiet automobiles. They were partially successful. The invention of mufflers certainly did a lot. The better acoustical design of buildings helped somewhat, although that, like most other amenities, was not distributed equally through society, nor is it distributed equally today. According to the last U.S. Census, if you're African-American, you're twice as likely as a white American to live in noisy housing. That doesn't necessarily mean your neighbors are noisier. It might but it probably means that the walls are thinner and also your housing is located where there are other noise sources. A lot of the efforts in the 20s to mitigate sound or to fight noise were shot down with the advent of the Great Depression. And probably the world got quieter in a dismal way because people weren't working and they could afford fewer noise-making things. Finally, Garrett, do you seek out quiet yourself? Do you go to quiet places? In fact, well, what's the quietest place you've ever been in? I do seek out quiet. One of the quietest places I've ever been in is in the middle of Manhattan, up in the great reading room of the New York Public Library, where this diverse gathering of people, from people carrying their belongings in shopping bags to old scholars with bow ties and scarred briefcases, uh, sit in this immense room and work or sleep or doze or dream in quietness. Garrett Kaiser, thanks so much for speaking to us today about noise. Thanks for having me on. I've enjoyed our conversation. The Unwanted Sound of Everything We Want is Garrett Kaiser's book about noise. And there was plenty of that when Molly continued her search for silence with author George Foy in his hometown, Cambridge, Massachusetts. I mean, this is Cambridge, not New York City, not even Boston, right? Bookish, contemplative Cambridge. We're standing at the intersection of Pearl and Franklin in the middle of Cambridge. You have a decibel meter, so we can just take a maybe a, a reading just here of what the city is like. Mid-50s, when I'm not talking. Okay, so this is about what Mount Auburn was like. About the same, yeah. Let's go over to the bus stop. 
Did you get the reading on that UPS truck? It was 81 with the UPS truck. And so buses, I understand, which is what we're looking for right now, buses are some of the loudest things in the city. The bus exhaust of the Boston, the MBTA buses, I've found to be significantly high. We'll measure it. So a bus is just pulled out. It's the 70. You, are you measuring ambient sound or bus sound? What, what, what's the bus Sorry. sound? The bus driver wants to know what, what the bus... What are you actually measuring? Ambient sound? Just the general surrounding sound? Especially when it's accelerating, coming out of the exhaust ports. Oh, okay. Interesting. Want to guess what it is? The principle of variability would apply here. It's one of the loudest things in Boston. Is it really? Yeah. I can be loud too. <laughs> okay, take care. So what was the reading? That was 89 when he was accelerating about 100 feet away, which is well over the OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration uh, limits for safe sound. Okay, let's go underground, which may actually be louder. Okay, so we're going down into the, uh, the T. So we're going right to the end because you want to catch the train what, right, right as it comes out of the tunnel? Yeah, it's going at its fastest pace and, and then obviously slowing down as it comes in. So what do you think the reading on this is going to be? The last time I did this, it was about, I think it actually hit 100, which was louder than the space shuttle takeoff when I was at the VIP area in Canaveral. Okay, I can feel the wind coming through, so I guess that that is. Here comes the train. Okay, I'm going to step back. That one got up to about 96, 97, which is actually quieter than or less loud than I've measured it before. He came in pretty slowly. Not quite the loudness of a rocket taking off at Cape Canaveral, but, but it's up there. Actually, at a different station, it would be the same loudness as the space shuttle from a mile or so away, which is as close as they allow you to get. When you're right next to the space shuttle, it's uh, supposed to be the loudest noise on Earth. So, Molly, a pretty cacophonous city. I mean, I've actually been to a shuttle launch, and it really shakes you up. Were you a mile away like I he was? I was three miles away. It was still loud? Yep. You know, it's incredible. I had no idea how loud an ordinary trip through a city could be. I mean, in decibels. I'm, I'm always aware of noise. In fact, I carry earplugs with me all the time, and I use them on the subway in San Francisco. But, you know, noise is relative. I mean, some people can't sleep without the sound of the buses and the garbage trucks. For someone who's just come to the city, that's noise. But for someone who's lived there for years, it's just the background sound of life. You don't feel that way, Seth, because you claim, claim to have invented the white noisemaker. I think I did invent the white noisemaker. <laughs> I mean, this goes back to my grad student days, which you can read about in classical history books. When my roommate, Valdar, and I happened to have an apartment in Pasadena that abutted a yard that was being used as a daycare center. And every morning there would be kids in that yard kids tend to be noisy, and they'd wake us up. And so we found a technical fix. We created the white noise maker. Seth, I'm just not sure I believe that. Now, I know you've claimed to have invented a lot of things, including the electric banana, and that I believe that you did invent. But the white noise maker... I did invent it. So call Valdar. Why don't you call him, get him on the phone. I want to hear it from him. Can you call him? Yep. Yeah, I can call him. I mean, he's working in New York. Okay, great. Call Valdar. Let's see what he says about your invention. Yeah, okay. Hello. Uh, Valdar, this is Seth. Hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. How are you doing? Yeah, well, okay. Hey, listen, Valdar, we were sitting around here thinking about noise. And, uh, subject. Yeah, well, a noisy subject. And, and you may recall back in grad school, we had a problem with noise. We sure did. We had the misfortune of having our uh, bedrooms facing a courtyard where the children's daycare center would let out the kids with their usual noisy shrieks and stuff. 
Yeah, as I recall, they were waking us up every morning at some ungodly hour. That's I, right, like at 11.30 a.m. I mean, it's just awful. Yeah, <laughs> it was. But we tried to combat that noise. I mean, we... we as, I recall, as I recall, they tried some uh, foam rubber kind of flabs on their windows, Yeah. which you know, decreased the noise by maybe, you know, a dB or so, which, of course, didn't work. Yeah, and not only that, but the, the smog in L.A. began to eat the foam rubber. I remember <laughs> was piling up at the, the bottom of the sills. But, and then I remember I tried uh, sort of a technique of killing noise with noise. First of all, it's tuning the FM receiver to some place between stations and turning up the volume. It gets sort of a hissing sound. Yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes the, the uh, signal would uh, come back and you'd hear some loud rock music, which would uh, totally wake up. Remember that you, you came up with a very good idea. You were pretty handy with uh, electronic gadgetry. And remember you set up some uh, white noise uh, generators involving... They're called a xenodiode. Yeah, we imaginatively called this thing the hisser because it just made white noise. Psh, that that's kind of right, that's right. It drowned out all the sounds from the backyard. No more kitty screams and yells, and we slipped sounds as a baby. Yep, this thing really, really worked. But uh, remember, everything, of course, has its unforeseen consequences. We would uh, take them with us, and uh, it turned out sometimes to be a little hard to fall asleep without the hisser, even if there was no background noise. In fact, Mallard, I may be wrong, but I thought I suggested to you that we could sell these things. I recall that vaguely, too, although it didn't really lead very far. Well, that's because you said nobody would buy them. But, but in fact... Well, you, but was I wrong? Yeah, people buy them all the time now. They're called, what, sleep conditioners or something like that's that. That's right. You can have all kinds of, you know, sounds of waves breaking or birds chirping or wind in the trees and, uh, you know, big bucks. So does this mean that I'd be driving a better car today if uh, you hadn't discouraged this idea? Well, you'd probably be flying a better plane. <laughs> well, but I, I remember one also a slight uh, interesting fact was that we'd be in some public place, uh, you know, I don't know, some station or some place, and we'd hear a noise which sounded a little bit, little bit like the hisser, and uh, we'd start to nod off a little bit. <laughs> Pavlovian. <laughs> that's it, that's it. Well, it's good to talk with you. One final question. Um, do you use any noisemaker now? Well, actually, I'm uh, living in New York City where there's so much ambient noise in the background that I'm so used to it. It's like Fisher's Paskey and Fisher, when they had the tournament match, he would complain if he had a little bit of rustling in the audience. But the loud street noises, he said, that's the right kind of noise. And so that's my view right now. I have the right kind of street noise. So you don't need one. I have to tell you that I'm still using a hisser, uh-huh. one that I built uh, based on the original model. Hey, and, all right. And it's in my bedroom and I use it every night. Well, good to think here that certain things in the universe are constant. (laughs) Well, good as always to talk with you. Likewise, likewise. We'll talk again and reminisce again, and uh, good sleep. Bye-bye, Valor. Okay, take care. See ya. You could have gotten rich on that hisser, Seth. (laughs) Next, detecting the hiss of the universe, also the wail of a black hole being born. Yeah, maybe in space we can hear a scream. It's noisy out there, so rend me your ears on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
Seth, is it true that in space, no one can hear you scream? <laughs> well, well, put it this way, no human could hear you scream. Why? Well, you need something to carry those pressure waves we were talking about, you know, that cause sound here on Earth. You need an atmosphere or water or, or a piece of steel or something to carry the pressure waves. I mean, if we pumped all the air out of this room, you and I could be talking, but we wouldn't actually hear one another. Mind you, it would be kind of hard for us to do that for very long because, of course, we'd asphyxiate. But... <laughs> I mean, some might say that our talking is what takes all the air out of the room. Right. But the point is, without air, I'd have a hard time hearing you. And in space, there's no air, except in space there actually is a little bit of air, <laughs> a little bit of gas between the stars. So there really are pressure waves, but they're very, very weak. I should work in space. It sounds like there's less pressure there. Yeah, but there are objects moving around in space, planets, stars, all that stuff. And that motion makes another kind of ripple, ripples in space-time, and that makes gravity waves. But gravity waves, while they were predicted by Einstein's theory of gravity, haven't actually been detected yet directly. No, but a big project is underway trying to do just that, LIGO. The Laser Interferometer Gravity Wave Observatory is designed to detect gravity waves coming from space. Well, Seth, could you actually hear those waves? No, because your ears are a very poor gravity wave detector. But, of course, you could put on some earphones that are connected to LIGO and, and turn that gravity wave shaking into audible shaking, turn it into sound waves, and then you could hear it. So you could translate a shaking, a movement, into something you could hear. Hey, your record player does that all the time. Well, it makes you wonder, then, if the universe was ever a quiet place. Exactly. And that's what I asked Craig Hogan from Fermilab, where they have a particle accelerator used to smash elementary particles together to learn about the fundamental building blocks of the universe. A universe, by the way, that started with a big bang. But, Craig, was there really a bang? Well, there was a big bang, but we don't know how loud it was. But it could have been a really quiet event. It could have been a relatively quiescent flying apart without much noise behind left by it. But, of course, as the movie ad goes, in space, nobody can hear you scream because there's no air in space. So what does it mean to talk about sound in space? Well, it's true that there's no air in space and there's no real sound in space. But there are vibrations in space-time that we call gravitational waves. And they're, they're vibrations in space-time itself, not in air. And those, we think, were left behind. Some vibrations of that kind were left behind by the Big Bang. Uh, are they still around? The echo from the Big Bang, the sounds have not gone away. They've just decreased in frequency as the universe expanded and got fainter. But they should still be there for us to hear. So they, they've moved down, if you will, they've moved down the scale, but they're still there. They're still there. They're just about a mile off the left side of the piano keyboard. <laughs> okay. Now, these sound waves are more than just a curiosity, right? I mean, they define something about the eventual structure of the universe. Isn't that correct? Yeah. I mean, what, one of the fascinating things is that if we can detect them, we can learn about things in the early universe that we couldn't learn about any other way. They're, they're, they're so penetrating that they can go through any kind of matter. So we can't learn about those aspects of the universe by simply looking using light, for example, which is what most of astronomy uses. So what you're saying is that, indeed, there are these sound waves out there that we could still detect. So it might tell us something about what was happening back in the, the days shortly after the Big Bang. But the, these sound waves are due to the motion of matter. They're sort of uh, gravity waves. They're just disturbances in the gravitational field of the cosmos. That's right. The, the gravitational waves are vibrations in space-time itself. And they're generated when matter and energy move. And then at this end, the passage of these waves causes very tiny motions in masses, and that's how we detect them. Why is it that we can 
consider studying them now and couldn't 10 years, 20 years ago? Well, the, the, the motions that are generated by these waves are in, incredibly small. I mean, after all, they, the waves have been passing through the universe for billions of years, and by the time they get to us, the jitter that it causes in the vibrations and the motions of matter are so small that they're practically undetectable. And they're just, up till now, they've just been buried in all the other motions caused by all the other forces of nature. But we just about have the technology um, to actually see these vibrations. So there's a few machines around the world um, one of them is the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, uh, LIGO as it's called, which uses laser light to measure the vibrations of mirrors. And the motions they detect are at what would be called an atometer scale, which is about a billionth of a billionth of a meter. They're, they're shaking less distance than it is across the atom, right? Uh, by about a billion times, yeah. This is really the mother of all hearing aids in some yeah, sense. Yeah, no, absolutely right. It's an, the, the most sensitive microphone. What could you hope to learn? I mean, obviously, you don't know what you're going to learn because you want to learn it. But <laughs> assuming you turn this device, which, after all, is designed for detecting gravity waves of, if you will, a more conventional kind, maybe colliding stars or something like that, what could you possibly learn here or what could you foresee learning here that would be uh, worth the effort? Well, there, so there's a long list of things. And as you say, you know, there's on, at the top of the list of the things that we know are there. I mean, there are binary stars that we see already that are emitting gravitational waves, and we should detect those. If we understand gravity correctly, we should detect those gravitational waves. So that already tells us something about gravity that we didn't know. It confirms those theories. But then beyond that, we think that there are um, binary black holes orbiting each other and merging all the time in the universe. Well, we've never seen that. But we should hear that happen a lot, you know, sort of a few times a week, perhaps. Somewhere in the universe, we'll hear these chirps going off, and that will tell us about both gravity and about the universe. It'll give us very precise information about where things are, and this will be the first time that we will have detected behavior of space-time just interacting with itself. That's what black holes are when they're orbiting each other. And then you, go, you can go on and on, and a list of things we might find, and, you know, the list includes things that we can just imagine might be there, things like cosmic strings and intergalactic space, which may or may not be there, but if they're there, we'll find them, and that's, that's brand new physics. All the way back to the Big Bang, you go back to the, the moment of creation, and whether that was loud or quiet, you know, we'll hear the noise or we won't hear the noise, and we'll listen to its spectrum, hear what it sounds like, and um, that'll also tell us about how the world was made. Now, did I get this right, that uh, there's the opportunity to actually hear a black hole? Absolutely. So when, when things fall into black holes or when black holes fall into each other, they emit lots of gravitational waves. In fact, when that happens, the uh, power coming out in gravitational waves from a single pair of merging black holes is more power than all the light of all the stars in the whole observable universe put together. And, and what would it sound like? It would sound like a chirp. It would sound like a tone and a sl with a slow variation and increase in frequency. So, bweet, something like that? That's right, yes. Well, clearly, the cosmos is noisier than uh, I would have thought. But, but suppose we happen to pick a, a, an interval between you know, the collapse of stars or the birth of black holes or whatever. It's just a quiet moment, if you will, in the universe. Is there some sort of background hiss, background hum that's always going on? Oh, yeah. No, so um, ba basically, you know, the universe is full of stars and neutron stars and white dwarfs and they're all they're orbiting each other. You know, the solar system, you have the planets going around the sun. All of those motions radiate gravitational waves. So there's, there is a continuous hiss. 
all the time. And actually, if we build a gravitational wave observatory in outer space, which we want to do, it's called LISA, Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, that will detect gravitational waves on a continuous basis. There'll be gravitational noise all the time. It's a, it's a little bit like going into a jungle where there's so many noises everywhere that you can distinguish the nearby things quite easily, but there's a continuous racket of things in the background making noise. Well, that's background noise, but I sort of wonder if there might also be a sort of an unavoidable, if you will, quantum of minimum noise. I mean, just as quantum mechanics seems to indicate there's a minimum distance, there's a minimum interval of time, could there be a minimum amount of silence, as it were, that it can't get any quieter than this, even if you, you know, rope off a part of the universe and keep it free of orbiting planets and anything else? Well, I, I'm glad you asked me about that, because that's the experiment that we're trying to do at Fermilab right now. So this is an area which is really new physics. I mean, we, really, the answer to your question is we don't know what really empty space sounds like if there were no gravitational waves. But there are some theories which suggest that there is a minimum interval of time or a maximum frequency, a sort of an irreducible quantum uncertainty, a length below which there is no space. And those kinds of theories, there's an information limit. Uh, you know, it's like, like your um, internet service provide, provider gives you a certain number of bits per second. Well, it could be that nature will only give you 10 to the 44 bits per second. That's just, just the way it is. And that limits the fidelity of reality to a certain level, which isn't perfect. You know, just like depending on how much bandwidth you're getting, things might be a little bit blurry. That, that might be true for the real world. It might actually be a limit to the fidelity of the real world, and that is something we might actually also be able to detect directly with very sensitive instruments. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. It sounds like, uh, you know, can we get a little bit of quiet around here has its limits. Craig Hogan, I want to thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you very much. Craig Hogan smashes particles together at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, Fermilab, where he is director for particle astrophysics. Okay, so maybe the universe was never a quiet place, but that doesn't stop humans from seeking out silence. Molly and author George Foy finally found the quietest place in Boston. Okay, George, we've just walked into the Athenaeum. I feel like I should be whispering, but I guess I don't need to. Well, you are in the library, but this is the stacks, which are known as the drum. And you are well insulated within an old, old library and insulated on top of that by hundreds and thousands of volumes of books. Now, this is one of the quietest places in Boston. This is the quietest place I've discovered in Boston. You have your decibel meter. What does it say? Well, when we're not talking, it reads down to 38, 39 and a half. When we're talking, it goes up to 45, 46. Okay, 39, 38 and a half is what it reads. Can you compare that to anything? Well, it's low conversation in a library. That's typically how it's described, actually, at around that level. And it's maybe a very, very light breeze outside your house. Okay, this is not the quietest place that you've been on your journey, although this is pretty silent. Where did you go that was more quiet than this? The quietest place was an anechoic chamber in Minnesota, which is rated by the Guinness Book of World Records as the quietest place on Earth. It's rated down to minus 9.4 decibels. So that's three orders of magnitude below the point at which humans can hear anything. What is an anechoic chamber? In this case, it's uh, three cubes, two, one of concrete, and then the two inner ones of plated steel uh, nestled within each other, resting on springs to dampen vibration. And within the innermost cube, 
there's a grid work that you stand or sit on and you're surrounded by sound absorbent material. There's no sound. You walk in there and the most amazing thing happens. You, you feel, or at least I felt this sort of bubble effect in my ear, which is the only way I can describe it. It was an, it was an absence. It was, there was nothing there except my waiting for sound, my expectation of sound. It only lasted for a few seconds at most. And then I began to realize I make noise. My body's making noise. I, I'm breathing. Okay, I stop breathing for a while, but then I hear my heartbeat. I can't stop my heartbeat, obviously, but I become even more aware as the silence continues that I cannot live. I, I cannot do anything without making some kind of sound. When I frown, my skin drags over my skull and makes a noise. So even in the anechoic chamber, you heard your own body, or sounds from your own body. So does true silence exist in the world? Well, obviously, it depends how you define true silence. In scientific terms, absolute absence of sound waves, of particles rubbing against each other and creating waves, no, it doesn't exist. Even deep space has particles that eventually rub against each other and at some incredibly low frequency generate sound waves. So there's, there's no part of the universe, apparently, that we know of where absolute silence exists. True silence, I would probably define as that place you go to both physically and probably internally as well, where you can cut off sound as much as possible, as much as is necessary for yourself, and craft a rhythm that is right for you and right for your life. It's getting near closing time here at the Athenaeum, although I hate to leave. I want to take this with me. There's no way to can it and take it with us. Lead the way. Back into the noisy world. Zero Decibels is George Foy's book, the quest for absolute silence. Hey, Seth, grab that decibel meter, will you, and measure the pressure waves as I thank Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler for their help with the program. Okay, it's reading mm, 62 decibels. Okay, that's not enough pressure for those guys. <laughs> also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, which is hoping to find some sort of waves coming from life elsewhere in the cosmos. You've been listening to Rend Me Your Ears. If you'd like to praise the ingenuity of the person who titles the show, send me an email, and I'll pass it on to that person. You'll find that email link at radio.seti.org, and if you just want to hear more programs, you'll find an archive there, too. It's Big Picture Science. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 